He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, for it is your word that informs us, strengthens us. It's your word that transforms us. It is your word that you use to edify us, to strengthen us. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our soul, and Father, we're thankful for it. We're thankful for its illumination. We're thankful for uh, the fact that we can recite it in times of need, that through your word we are comforted. But Father, there are times when it looks in our translations that things are, there's a conflict or a problem. This morning we look at one of those passages and we pray that you'd help us to understand what you have revealed and how it is that we should understand what Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in relation to inheritance. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll review a little bit in terms of why we got here, why we're here in reference to our study here in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, we have the passage that talks about the fact that we have been given God the Holy Spirit, that we have been sealed by God the Holy Spirit, and that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so four or five weeks ago, I started a sub-series, as I want to do, to help us understand the background for terms like this. These are highly significant terms and often misunderstood. And when we examine what the Bible teaches about inheritance, it is really a, a teaching, a doctrine that is designed to motivate us, to encourage us, to uh, get us uh, focused on living today in light of eternity. And so when we look at inheritance, there's also some problem passages that we've looked at in the past. But what we've learned as we've gone through this study, that there are two areas of inheritance for believers, not only in this age, but also in the Old Testament. We looked at 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, which talks about the fact that we are uh, born again to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not wait, fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for us. This is talking about that first category, an inheritance that we all have in common, that which we will all receive 
when we are when we die physically we're face to face with the lord eventually we get our resurrection body when the rapture occurs and there's a number of other things that are true for every single believer that goes to heaven we have also passages such as colossians 3:24 that teach that there is something that we work for see salvation is free Salvation is a free gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. But here we have a category of inheritance that is related to serving the Lord. This is that second category of inheritance. And Colossians 3.24 says that uh, because we know that from the Lord we will receive the reward of the inheritance. Uh, and then the command, you all serve the Lord. Why? Because that's related to receiving that reward of our inheritance. So we see that these two categories relate to a fr- the free gift, and that is our inheritance. And as we saw in Romans eight seventeen, being heirs of God. And then there's an additional reward. And I've used the illustration for years that this is like a contract with an incentive clause. We are incentivized by the scripture to live for God. Now, there's controversy over this, even among those who are in what we might refer to as a free grace camp, dispensational camp. Uh, Everybody believes that rewards are going to be distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. What's interesting is everybody seems to believe that there are those who are going to be at the judgment seat of Christ who will suffer loss. They don't lose their salvation but they don't have any rewards. They just come up with bupkis because they fail to walk with the Lord, serve the Lord. Uh, they fail to grow in any way, shape, or form. They are saved, but that's it. They are regenerate, but it doesn't go any further than that. And so there is this distinction between those who have the bare essentials and have eternal life and spend eternity in heaven And then there are those who pursue serving the Lord, and they have uh, additional rewards and blessing both in time and in eternity. And this is designed to motivate us, not to scare us, but so that believers will not become lax. Uh, Then on the other hand, there are those, even within our uh, milieu, our group of churches, who believe, no, 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 everybody gets the same thing. My opinion, that is... That is a form of spiritual communism. It is the idea that that you find behind a lot of the sports teams in California that everybody gets the same participation trophy. And all you have to do is show up and you get the same thing as those who pursued spiritual growth and grew to maturity and that there's no distinction. And the problem we see in the economic world and socialism and communism is when everybody gets the same thing, whether you work hard or not, then it destroys motivation. It destroys that incentive. And so you just say, well, we're all going to end up getting exactly the same thing at the judgment seat of Christ. So why should I pursue spiritual growth or spiritual maturity? I'm just going to live my life on the basis of my sin nature and enjoy life here. And then uh, we'll all have the same thing when we get to heaven. I do not believe that that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are those who have rewards and those who lose rewards. But there's another problem on the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is there there are those who are legalists who think that, well, not only do you lose rewards, but you're going to, and then they take passages out of context in the Gospels, 
you're going to suffer some temporary punishment when you, during the millennial kingdom, you're going to be in a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And as a result of misinterpreting parables that come, for example, at the end of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that they interpret those parables as applying to the church and not applying to the rewards for uh, believers at the end of the tribulation. And it just leads to a real mess in theology. So the position that we have is that believers all get, all believers get a certain set uh, rewards as heirs of God. And then there are, uh, and they're not, not really rewards, everybody gets the same inheritance, same possessions uh, related to eternal life. But then there are additional blessings and rewards that come as a result of, of serving him. Now that brings us to some passages that seem to counter a, a grace gospel. A grace gospel being defined by Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which we'll get to uh, halfway through the next chapter in Ephesians, that it is by grace that we are saved and not by works. In Titus 3, 5, which says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, and Galatians 2, 16, that we are not justified by the works of the law. Therefore, works are completely, completely excluded. But then you run into these passages, like the one we will study this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, where Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Just as an intro observation, verse, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10 expand on the section, the phrase that I have underlined. The unrighteous in verse 9, which is where there's debate over that meaning, are then defined not as unbelievers, but as those who practice certain unrighteous acts or certain mental attitude sins that are not compatible with the righteousness of God. So those who are the unrighteous of verse 9 are further defined as the fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, etc. in those next verses. And in both, see, in both cases, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Problem you get is in some denominations and some groups, the idea of inheriting the kingdom is equivalent to entering into eternal life, going to heaven. And so the sad part of that is they say that people who do this, do these things, don't inherit uh, the kingdom and they won't go to heaven. Either they will lose their salvation if they do these things, or if they do these things, they weren't ever really saved. If you have the position that if you do these things, you lose your salvation, that is known as Arminianism, and it is a works-based, legalistic-based system. If you take the view that you weren't really saved, that's what we call lordship salvation, that faith is more than simply believing in Christ. It is a commitment to him, and if you're truly regenerate, you will have works that are consistent with being regenerate. 
So when we look at this passage, we see that it's a real dividing line between those who truly understand the grace of God and those who do not. If you go to the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, those areas, then the Slavic Baptist churches in the different, different nations do not believe in eternal security. And so they would go to a passage like this. And usually when you start off and you say, well, do you think people who are fornicators, do they go to heaven? Oh, no, 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 no. Are idolaters, do they go to heaven? See, they don't even believe in the true God or they wouldn't be idolaters. They go to heaven? No, 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 they don't go to heaven. And it seems to work pretty good until you get down to uh, maybe the beginning of verse 10 where you have covetous. Have you ever coveted anything? Have you ever gone to a store and you said, I, I really need that? I just have to get it. I'm going to go into debt to get it just because it's going to make me happy. I need that kind of a car or dress or suit or clothes because that's the status that's going to make me happy. Oh, wait a minute. Now that gets beyond those overt sins to mental attitude sins. Also, what about drunkards or revilers, uh, extortioners? And you get into some other areas of sin. But then it might get even worse, although in Ephesians 5.5 5, it basically is summarizing those sins in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, where Paul writes, parallel passage, For this you know with certainty that no uh, immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. See, this is the here and in Colossians, Paul identifies covetousness. That's just, that's greed. That is looking to money or the things that money can buy as the source of happiness rather than God. That's what makes it idolatry. And so Paul says this mental attitude sin of idolatry excludes you from uh, having an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then we get over into Galatians five nineteen through 21, and after we get past these overt sins that are listed in the verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Then we have hatred. Have you ever hated somebody? Have you ever been really angry at somebody and you just wish you just fantasize about a torturous death for them? <laughs> or being contentious. You know, anybody who's been in a church that didn't have some faction that was being contentious hasn't really been in a real-life church contentiousness. Have you ever been contentious? Well, have you ever had contention in your marriage or at work? Uh, well, that starts to get pretty dicey there for some people. Jealousy. Have you ever been jealous of somebody? They get a promotion and you didn't? Wait a minute. This is moving beyond those overt sins, and this is getting to a point where it's getting pretty, pretty scary for everybody. And then Paul adds things like outbursts of wrath. Now, I'm not going to name any names, but I would imagine anybody who has taken the time to drive on a Houston freeway in just the last couple of days has probably had an outburst of anger as somebody has cut you off. Or I was coming back the other day and was coming down 610, and I saw this guy coming behind me at 90 miles an hour or more, and when he got even with my passenger side door, he started changing lanes to get in front of me, and I had to put on the brakes. Five minutes later, I had a guy who, I had a guy up in my eleven or one o'clock position. 
I had another guy in a huge uh, uh, suburban pull up next to me, and I could see that he's looking at his cell phone for his his Google map or whatever. And while he is, the front end of my car is level with his driver's side door, he changed lanes into my lane. Fortunately, I was in the left lane, and I went into the shoulder, but he kept coming into the shoulder. And he was he finally heard my horn, and I think that you could have passed, barely passed a piece of paper between our cars. I had, like, those were two of maybe four incidences in just one trip. So, you know, ever have an outburst of anger? Well, maybe if you interpret inheriting the kingdom as entering into heaven, well, maybe you won't make it. This starts getting pretty, pretty tough. So we have envy and jealousy and dissensions. All of these things are listed. So we have looked at this in terms of trying to understand what inheritance means because Paul marks it in Ephesians 1.14 as something we all have. But then in Ephesians 5.5, 5, which is where we're going, it's clear that it is something that is seems to be additional and conditioned upon our behavior. Ephesians 1.14 is conditioned upon God's decision. Ephesians 5.5 5 is conditioned upon our behavior. So we looked at what the Bible teaches about inheritance and possession. That's basically what it means. We went through Old Testament passages looking at how inheritance was used in the Old Testament, came to the conclusion that though not all have an inheritance in the land, the land was given to Israel as their possession, and the word for inheritance is used there, but all have God as their inheritance and possession. The Levites did not have any land. They did not have any real estate, but God was their possession. And so the Old Testament we've seen teaches these two categories of inheritance, inheritance of God for all believers and an inheritance that is not for all believers. Then we looked also last time at what the Bible teaches about airship, asking the key questions, is inheritance a synonym for receiving eternal life? Key question, key interpretive question. Second, is an inheritance earned, given, or both? Third, what exactly is the meaning of inheritance, and what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? That's Those are the core questions we need to answer, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and Ephesians 5, 5, and Galatians 5, uh, 19 to 21. So we've seen two categories of inheritance, inheriting the kingdom and inherit salvation in Romans 8.17. And this is what the verse looks like if it's not punctuated. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Well, those of you who've been with me for a while know that I've used for many, many years, as I commented a couple of, on, in the last lesson, that I have used this line, woman without her man is nothing. And it can be punctuated a couple of different ways, and you get some opposing meanings. So I said, I need to come up with something new. Well, Vicki, who does the illustrations for DBM for the website, sent this little meme to me. And if you can't read it or see it, The bottom line says it all, commas save lives. And this mother is has a meat cleaver in her right hand, and she's chasing two children, and she says, time to eat children. No comma. See, if you put a comma in there, time to eat children. So 
we look at the word comma. And I was talking with Jim Myers about this when last week, and he said, well, have you ever read this book called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves? So I, I ordered it. Y- y'all ought to all get this. In fact, I have uh, made the suggestion to our, our Greek exegesis pro- professor that he, this needs to be required reading for all pastors. And I'm also requiring it for my Friday uh, morning pastors, and we're going to talk about it. Because when, you, when we as exegetes are translating the original language into English, we have to figure out how to punctuate it so English readers will read it correctly. That's the purpose of punctuation. But the original Hebrew and original Greek, even the ancient Latin manuscripts, did not have punctuation. Punctuation did not start to really come into effect. There were a few examples of early punctuation uh, in the... um, among the Greeks, mostly it was just to set up pauses so that actors reading the uh, the dramas would pause at the right place, but they never really settled in. And in the Middle Ages, there were a couple of different things that were used, but, but even the use, we're used to, when you end a sentence, you put a period, and then the next sentence starts with a capital. Well, in the medieval manuscripts between let's say the 3rd century, 4th century, and the 7th century, when you finished a page, if you didn't finish it where the last word finished a sentence, when you started at the top of the next page, the first word, whether it was the last word in a sentence, the middle of the sentence, or whatever, began with a capital. And it wasn't really until the printing industry came in to be in the the, uh, late 1400s that what we think of as punctuation came into effect. And the reason I'm going through this history, this this book, Each Shoots and Leaves, is by Lynn Truss, and it's based on the, the uh, punchline of a joke. And I'm going to read you the joke. A panda walks into a cafe, and he sits down and orders a sandwich, eats it, and then draws a gun and fires two shots in the air. The waiter comes over and says, Why? The panda is getting up and going to the exit, and he pulls out a badly punctuated wildlife manual and tosses it to the waiter and says, I'm a panda. Look it up. So the waiter turned to the relevant entry, and sure enough, he found this explanation. Panda. Large, black and white, bear-like manual, bear-like mammal, native to China, eats, comma, Shoots and leaves. <laughs> so by putting the comma in there, you turn those three words into three verbs. If you take the comma out, you have one verb and two nouns. Isn't it amazing what punctuation can do? Anyway, this book is hilarious. This lady who wrote this book has a great sense of humor, and I find, found myself just laughing uncontrollably at a lot of the things that she commented on and said. And uh, it's, it's especially if you've got grandkids or kids that are getting into junior high, high school where they're dealing with punctuation, this book is subtitled The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation. Now, you all think, boy, that's pretty geeky and nerdy, isn't it? But it makes a difference, especially if you're handling grammar like, like I do and trying to figure out how a, what a verse means and how it should, should be communicated. So we get into talking about these commas. 
And the word comma came into English. It's actually originated with a Greek, Greek word to define a what we would call a phrase or a clause, to set off a group of words from the rest, rest of the sentence. Later on, it came to refer to that, not, just, not the phrase, but the dot with the tail on it that we associate with the symbol for, for a comma. Now, this came into existence in f- around 15, the early 1500s to mid-1500s. Now, think about that. You're within 50 years of the translation of the King James Bible, okay? They had not really settled on what the rules of the comma are. Guess what? We still haven't settled on what the rules for the comma are. I bet we could have a rip-roaring debate between a couple of people here over whether or not to use the Oxford comma. And we'd have a good debate between the rest of you who say, well, who cares? <laughs> so this is, this is something of, of significance because when you get the King James Version, and I'll show it to you in a minute, the original 1611 and how it punctuated Romans 8.17, you need to realize that they really hadn't decided why they were putting that punctuation in there yet. It's still kind of fuzzy, and they really don't get clear on more specific rules until you get into closer into the um, into the 20th century. The uh, colon, I'm telling you this for a purpose because we're going to look at a colon in, or semicolon in a minute, comes into effect by a printer named uh, Aldus Manutius the Elder in 1494. That's like 20 but 23 years before the Protestant Reformation, they're just beginning to really crank out a lot of Bibles, and they're just introducing a semicolon. So that just is give you a little hint as to how it took a little while for this to come into effect. Now here's an example of testing you on a comma. This is from a county school exam in England in 1937. Charles I walked and talked half an hour after his head was cut off. Well, how are you going to punctuate that? Correct punctu- the correct punctu- punctuation, Charles I walked and talked, period. Half an hour after, comma, his head was cut off. Punctuation really matters. Then you have this sentence, somewhat similar to the one I've been using, Johnny said the teacher was stupid. Well, is that Johnny, comma, said the teacher, comma, was stupid? Or is it Johnny said the teacher was stupid? Commas are important, and commas change the meaning of Bible verses. For example, in the King James, it says that when Jesus is on the cross, he's talking to the thief, and he says, Verily, comma, I say unto thee, comma, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Punctuated that way, it means that day, not long. The thief would be in paradise with Jesus. But in the second example, um, that's the second example is New King James and most Protestant translations, even a couple of Catholic translations now, but older Catholic translations translated it uh, according to the bottom one. Verily I say unto you this day, In other words, this day relates to when Jesus says it, not when they're going to be in paradise. And that opened the door so you could shove the whole doctrine of purgatory in there. Punctuation affects theology. 
So here it is. On the left hand, you have a facsimile of the page of Romans chapter 8 in the original 1611 King James Version. This is a great thing to do. You can go to the Internet and you can find these facsimiles, but if you ever run into one of those folks who believe in the King James only, you know, King James was good enough for Paul, so it's good enough for me, okay, you will discover that the King James that you and I are familiar with is not the way it was done in 1611, It's been updated I don't know how many times to modernize the language, and it has changed. So here on the right side is Romans 8.17, and you can see what that looks like if you can read it. And the English reads like this, And if children, comma, then heirs, comma, they used to use a lot more commas than we do today. Heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, colon. And I'm scratching my head going, why did they put the colon there? Then looking at Tress's book, you realize that they had no clue why they put commas, I mean colons anywhere until a couple of hundred years later. So it's not really clear what's happening other than, always remember this, a lot of punctuation initiated to give, to show readers how they should read, where they should pause, where they should speed up, things like that. The King James Version was translated with this kind of rhythm. How many of y'all, don't don't raise your hands, how many of y'all think it's easier to memorize in the King James Bible than anything else? That's because of the rhythm of the language. It was written to be read out loud, so the punctuation was designed to help the reader read it out loud. But then you'll read others who will say, by the time you get to about 1600, the printers are putting the punctuation in there to to work to uh, reveal what the syntax should be, and so who knows why these guys? I did tried to do some research on it, but there's not enough information. Why these guys punctuated this verse this way? But see, this is not the way the King James or the New King James, the New American Standard, are translated today. They don't have a comma after heirs of God. We could agree with this, that heirs of God is one category, joint heirs with Christ is another category, and that the conditional clause, if, it, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, that that just relates to, this, to the joint heir with Christ. So in these passages that I have on the board, these translations, see the New American Standard is at the top. It's heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ with no comma separating them. And that's NASB 95, New King James, a lot of others. The second one is the World English Bible and the American Standard Version. If children, then heirs, semicolon, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, colon. See, that's closer to what I think it should be. It distinguishes two different kinds of inheritance. And then you have... Uh, the ESV and the NIV and a number of others, and it's set off with an M dash. There's about three or four other ways this gets punctuated. So punctuation matters when it comes to theology. So what we've seen there is that there's two types of heirs, heirs of God, which refers to all believers, and joint heirs with Christ for those who grow spiritually. We have to distinguish between the passages that relate to what is for every believer and what's directed as an incentive or motivation to believers for additional 
rewards. And we run into these three problem passages in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and Ephesians 5, 5. So let's look at where we are, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. The key issue is that Paul asked the question in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? And then there's a grocery list of 10 sins, and then he concludes with saying those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is it just committing them once, or is this lifestyle practice? That's another question. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, verse 11 is important because a lot of people read this that you, some of you were like this. I mean, the some of you refers to, to the ones who are believers, but the rest of you haven't been washed, sanctified. You're unbelievers, and so you live like the devil. A lot of people read it that way, and we have to understand why that doesn't work. So basic questions we're going to answer. To whom is Paul writing? What do we know about these Corinthians, these Corinthian believers? Second, who are the unrighteous? The noun or adjectives used in verse uh, 1, and then you have the verb used in verse uh, 8 and 9, and so we have to look at those those issues. And then what does Paul mean when he says, don't be deceived? That's interesting. When he addresses them, if is he saying, don't be deceived, that people who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God? If he's saying that the autokoi the, the that do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God, if the autokoi are unbelievers then why should they be deceived? Everybody knows that unbelievers don't go to, don't, aren't going to have anything to do with the kingdom of God. So that indicates right away that this is not a passage that is contrasting believer and unbeliever, but two different kinds of believers. Then we've already covered this, so it's really easy to deal with the next question, what does inherit mean and what does inherit the kingdom mean? And then fifth, and such were some of you, and then we'll just apply it to the other passages. So, To whom is Paul writing? What do we know about these Corinthians? Now, if you think about what has been said about the Corinthians in the first five chapters, they're not a pleasant bunch. They are not a picture of spiritual maturity. In fact, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul calls them babies, and he uses a term that's really an insult. And so it's like talking to a teenager and saying, you're just acting like a whiny baby. It's an insult. It says you're carnal, you're fleshly, you're living on the basis of the sin nature, and you're walking like a mere man, not a regenerate person. So he just hammers them with the fact that they are living on the basis of sin, not on the basis of God the Holy Spirit. In the first chapter, he tells them that they're divided, they're contentious, they're uh, arrogant, they emphasize human wisdom over divine wisdom. Then as he moves along in chapter 3, he calls them carnal and that they're uh, spiritual babies. In chapter 4, verse 7 and verse 18, he says they're puffed up, they're arrogant. In 421, he says, now should I come to you with the rod of correction or a spirit of gentleness? So he hasn't said anything positive about these folks yet, but he addresses them over and over and over again as believers. They're believers who are living no differently from the culture that surrounds them. So 
when we get to chapter 6, one of their problems is that they have a, created a hyper-litigiousness within the culture of the church. Whenever anybody offended them, instead of turning the other cheek, they are taking the, that person to court. And so Paul says, Dare any of you having a matter or a problem with another, that's another believer, go to law before the unrighteous, we'll get back to that in a minute, and not before the saints. Why are you taking each other to court all the time? Again, this is just a side of their spiritual immaturity. So as we look at Corinth, we have to recognize that, first of all, it was established as a Roman colony. It had an ancient history, but in terms of uh, modern court at the time of Paul, it was established as a Roman colony. It was housed by military veterans. Military veterans usually have a way, a lot of them have a way of speaking that includes a lot of language that uh, would all get bleeped out on the television, and you wouldn't hear it, although those standards are changing today. And freedmen. It's also a port city, like Houston. And it brought sailors and slaves and Greeks and Egyptians and Asians and Jews all kinds of people together from Europe, from Europe. It is the crossroads of commerce in the ancient world. And they brought all their religious systems with them. So it was, there was rank uh, paganism. There is immorality associated with the fertility religions in, in these different, uh, different mystery religions and mystery cults, such that numerous writers in the ancient world remarked about Corinth as as a the the poster child of of uh, immorality and licentiousness and sexual perversion, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. It was the Las Vegas of its time. So, the the, the Corinthian believers are saved out of this context. That that was their normal lifestyle. They thought all of that was great and good and fine in their culture until Paul came along and started giving them the gospel. Actually, it was Apollos and some others that preceded him that began with the gospel. And so he's addressing a group that is that has come out of this culture, but they're still living like it. They are still involved in this. They're ignoring immorality in the church. At the beginning of chapter 5, they're ignoring the uh, incest that's taking place in the church where a man who's married his stepmother is, they're not doing anything about it. They're not shocked, but all the unbelievers outside of the church are shocked. They're suing each other in chapter 6. In chapter 7, they're immoral, they're fornicating, there's probably homosexuality and adultery going on as, as part of their subculture in chapter 11. They're using the Lord's table as a, an opportunity to get drunk because they had wine at the Lord's table and gluttonous. They just used it as an opportunity to, to uh, feed themselves and stuff themselves. In chapters 12 to 14, we see that they're challenged with using pagan methodologies. You can go on and on. There's just, they're just not anywhere close to being a, a picture of what a Christian ought to be. They are still living like they did uh, before they were saved. So that's who Paul's addressing there. They're not plaster saints. They, are, they have some serious spiritual problems. And then he talks about the, those who are doing wrong. Adekoy is the verb. 
and you have the term unrighteous translating the noun, and this comes up in verse 9. Well, you see it, first of all, back in chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Well, it's really clear that the second category is talking about believers, so many, many people will look at that and say, well, the unrighteous is in contrast to the saints, so this must be unbeliever versus believer. But when you get down to verse to verse 6, that's when Paul uses the term the unbeliever. When you get down to uh, 6, 6, he says, um, both brother, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. And that word for unbelievers is apistoi or apistos. Pistos is the word, the noun for belief, and the A at the beginning means unbelief. So you're going to law before unbelievers. Unbelievers is the term Paul uses over and again for unbelievers. Uh, Apistoi, apistos is the word that Paul uses over and again for unbelievers, not unrighteous. He's using unrighteous here because these judges they're going to are just as immoral as the people who you're suing. You're going to the bad to judge the bad, in other words. He's not, that, that use of that term is not defining their, necessarily their spiritual status. The, uh, Bauer Danker, Arndt Gingrich, the current version, uh, says Atticos, it pertains to acting in a way that is contrary to what is right. Dikos relates to righteousness. Dike is the verb to be righteous. And the negative in front of it means not righteous. It doesn't, it's not a word that means unbeliever. In other lexicons, it refers to being unjust, being unrighteous, dishonest, untrustworthy. Now, one of these lexica define it as an unbeliever. It just means somebody who's not doing right. And as I said in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, unbeliever, that's the term apistos. So, the term adikos means unjust or unrighteous, and that can refer to an unrighteous unbeliever, an, um, a believer that unbeliever that's immoral, or it can refer to an unrighteous believer who is also immoral and disobedient. Now, when we get down to verse 7 and 8, which immediately precede our problem passage, we shift from the noun that's used in verse 1 to the verb form of adikos to adikao. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, we read, Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. If you've gotten to the point where you're taking each other to court, you have blown it already. You are so far down the wrong road that you just need to quit. Why do you not rather accept wrongdoing? Adikao. That should be translated as wrongdoing. Why do you accept wrongdoing? Why are you compromising in doing this wrong thing going to court? Why do you accept wrongdoing? Why do you not rather, or excuse me, that should be, why do you accept wrong that is the wrongdoing that's coming towards you? Why do you not rather let yourself just be cheated? Verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong. See, that's how it should be translated. Adikao, do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. That sets us up. What does ad decao mean? 
it means wrongdoing. That's the verbal form. Then we get to verse 7, and it's going to translate adikao here as unrighteous, whereas before it's translated it as wrong. But there's a flow there. In 6 it's used, uh, excuse me, in uh, in 7 it's used for doing wrong. In 8 it's used for doing wrong. So it should be translated in verse 9 also as doing wrong to be consistent. And so if we translate verse 9 as, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, now he's talking about the, what the issue is. It's not talking about whether you're a believer or not and saying if you're a believer and you continue to live like an unbeliever, you continue to be immoral, you continue to practice all these things, then uh, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that you won't lose salvation. And then he says, don't be deceived. Well, what, what, what's he saying here? Is he saying something that, uh, that they were in danger of being deceived, that unbelievers would not inherit the kingdom? No. Everybody knew unbelievers wouldn't inherit the kingdom. What he's warning them about is don't be deceived into thinking that if you're a believer and you continue in these practices that you won't have consequences. And one of those consequences means it will impact eternal rewards and you won't have an inheritance in the kingdom. And so that takes us down to the fourth question, what does inherit mean? And it means to have possession or ownership. And when it comes to inheriting the kingdom, what we've seen is that means having a position to rule and reign, having responsibilities in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to do with positions of privilege and extra blessing in the kingdom. And that those who don't grow spiritually, those who continue in these sins and stay in carnality, then they won't inherit. Now, let me add a little caveat to this. We all sin. We all sin a lot, a lot more than we probably would admit to ourselves because there's a lot of sins that flow out of our own arrogance. But when we confess sin, we are cleansed of those sins. But there are a lot of people, and they just they they don't care about God anymore, and they just live according to their sin nature. And there's never any confession, there's never any cleansing, and so they just waste their lives spiritually by living uh, in in the world with no spiritual cleansing and no no forgiveness. But if we sin and we confess sin, not in a licentious way. But if we sin and we confess sin, we're constantly being cleansed so that we are growing in the Spirit and spiritual maturity takes place. The fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives. We're serving the Lord when we are walking with Him. And as a result of that, there will be, there will be rewards. We're, we're serving the Lord. So it, it's not saying that, well, you commit any, any of these sins, well, you're just never going to see any rewards. There's got to be a recognition these are sins and confession and attempts to deal with them in your life and grow and mature spiritually. And then we come to that last verse, and such were some of you. Now, that word such is talking about the homosexuals, the sodomites, the adulterers, the fornicators, uh, the, the, the cheaters, the... Um, all of the different things that are listed there, the covetous, the drunkards, the revilers, the extortioners. And he's saying, 
some of you were like that, past tense. Now, the way a lot of people read that is some of you used to be an unbeliever, now you're a believer, but that's the wrong way to read that. That's like what we see up here in this chart, that the sum equals believers, such were some of you, and the you equals unbelievers. And that's a contrast there. The second view is that some or all are just rhetorical, but they're all viewed as being positionally saved. That really doesn't go anywhere, and it ignores the thrust of the passage. But I think it's this view. The big circle is all of you are believers, okay? All of you are washed, because that's what it says. But you all, it's a plural, you all were washed. You all were sanctified positionally. But you all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But only a subset, only a few, have left that pagan lifestyle behind. The rest of them are washed, sanctified, they're saved, they're going to go to heaven, they're justified, but only some of them have become believers who have set aside those those past behaviors. That's the thrust of that last verse. So what we see here is inheriting the kingdom in this sense of a special ownership, special responsibility, special privilege in the kingdom when the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom during the millennium and then on into the future, that that can be jeopardized by our failure to grow spiritually. And that's the same thing that we have over in Uh, Colossians, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord. That's what that's about. So we receive that so that we can serve the Lord, build capacity to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. In Ephesians 5.5, it basically summarizes that list of ten sins in 1 Corinthians 6, under four categories, and says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. And that's talking about this characterizes their whole life after they're saved. Has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He's addressing believers again, but he's addressing these Ephesian believers because many of them are still have lives that are characterized by these sins. The same thing is true in Galatians five nineteen to 21, where he has a list of 17 sins, and many of them are parallel to what we have in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. But here he says that if you practice these things, the word in the Greek is proso. It's not poieho, which means to do it, but if you practice it, if this characterizes your life, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you confess your sin, remember you're cleansed and forgiven so you can grow through this and you can grow and mature and serve the Lord. Uh, We all sin. We all commit sins we don't want anybody to know about. We all commit sins that shock us at different times. But that's not our normative position. We confess sin. We move on. And that which is produced by walking by the Spirit is that which is rewarded 
in this special category that where we have spiritual growth develop capacity to rule and reign with the Lord in the kingdom and on into eternity. So we have these two categories of inheritance. The Holy Spirit is given to us. He seals us, marking us as God's possession, and he is the guarantee of that future inheritance that we all have in common. The issue is, what are we going to do with this great position that Christ has given us? Are we going to take advantage of it and grow spiritually and have additional rewards and blessings, or are we going to just be satisfied with the minimal and live our lives for ourselves in this world? That really becomes the issue that Paul addresses in the second half of Ephesians. So next time we'll come back, wrap up with Ephesians 1, the rest of Ephesians 1.14 and go into the rest of the first chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, be reminded of your grace to us, that our salvation is not dependent on anything that we do. It is dependent upon what Christ did on the cross. It is his work on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins in total. It is complete. Nothing can be added to it. All we do is accept it as a free gift by believing in him as our Savior, the one who died for our sins. But, Father, being born again just brings us into a new life. Beyond that, we have to nourish it. We have to grow. We have to learn all about you and about your plan for our lives. We have to learn to serve you, to grow spiritually, to recover from sin. And all of that is necessary. And the incentive for growing, the incentive for facing the opposition, adversity, suffering that comes our way because we are believers, the incentive for that is that we will receive additional blessings and we will be identified as overcomers, those who are victorious in our spiritual life. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that if there's anyone here or anyone listening that isn't sure about their salvation, that you would make the gospel very clear to them and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear that they need to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.